0: Welcome to episode 47 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co
1: host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor.
0: We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are going to be talking about permissions and fair use. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this is, again, another installment in our Publishing 301 series, and we wanted to get a little bit into this Um because this kind of goes along with our licensing and into intellectual property idea. But the concept of fair use, as most people know it, um, or most people think they know it, is actually not what legally fair use is. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly has more about this than I do. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, fair use. Well, I mean, let's... let's start by talking about permissions, because fair use is kind of like the exception to the rule. So let's talk about the rule first, which is permissions. Um, Permissions are a big part of the publishing world. Both granting permissions and obtaining permissions are a big part of what publishers do. Um, Granting permissions is when people approach the publisher or the rights holder. Sometimes it will be the author directly if rights have reverted. Um, Someone will approach the rights holder and say, I want to quote a portion of this work or I want to use this in my My class to teach a unit on something, or I want to use this to quote in my own book, or I want to create a documentary and have these quotes read aloud as part of the script, or, you know, whatever. They want to take a portion of a copyrighted work and use it as a part of a different copyrighted work. And so in order to do that, you need permission. Um, My first ever... Literary agent's job. Um, when I was working at a literary agency, I worked for the director of subrights and permissions, and we represented the estate of Martin Luther King Jr. And if you can imagine, a lot of people want to quote Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> and so um a lot of my job when i was in that position was processing all these permissions and sometimes permissions are granted free of cost a lot of times for schools um you know for classroom use or for really limited audiences or for non-commercial purposes you know sometimes people will be making like a family reunion booklet and they'll want to put quotes in there You know, little pamphlets or whatever, or for a school play or for, you know, some something that's not going to generate a profit. It's just for personal, non-commercial use. And sometimes, but not always, those smaller personal use um, requests will be granted at free of charge or at a very reasonable charge um, if it is for a commercial use or for something much larger, permissions can get really expensive and can run anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to a thousand plus, depending on the property and what's being, um, what permissions are being granted. So anytime you're going to be granted a permission as well, it's always going to be non-exclusive. More than one person is going to be able to get permission to use that thing. Um, you know, so you also know that going in, that you're not going to be the only one who's going to quote this thing or whatever else. So that's part of how publishers grant permissions. Publishers also obtain permissions, sometimes on behalf of their authors. Sometimes authors have to obtain permissions themselves directly.
1: Yeah, it is, um, kind of a little bit like passing the buck. To be honest, nobody wants to ask for permissions because it's a legal headache. Mm-hmm. Um so sometimes the publisher would be like, "Okay, well if you want to use this, then why don't you go ahead and contact the estate." And then and and then the author is then left to find out who to contact, where to get, you know. So often sometimes the the author may decide, "You know what? It's not worth it to quote this in what I'm trying to do." So dovetailing with that, I want to talk about copyright. Yeah, because it's probably a relevant thing to talk about when it comes to permissions. So copyright is um, something that the publisher, one, the publisher does for you. So don't copyright anything that you write before it's submitted.
0: Don't do it. I've had people do that, and it's a huge headache. Just don't.
1: <laughs> so, but yes, the the publisher will put, will register the copyright in your name. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I believe that in the U.S. anyway, copyright lasts for the lifetime of the author and then 75 years beyond death. Isn't
0: that right? I thought it was either 75 or 79. I actually can't remember which, but it's around there. Yeah. So once the
1: author has passed, then generally the author's estate will handle permissions as long as the copyright is in the author's name. Mm -hmm. And then we get into something called public domain. So a lot of works are in the public domain. You know, the works of Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle are in the public domain. Um, A lot of older novels are in the public domain. domain. So a lot of... um,
0: Jane Austen...
1: Jane Austen, uh, anyone can essentially quote freely or use material from works that are in the public domain. Um, so often, sometimes if you're trying to find a quote and it's still within copyright, it just may be easier to kind of go into the public domain and look for something to quote from there instead. Uh, but that is the way copyright law in the United States works. I am not entirely sure how it
0: works in other countries. It
1: may be different. Mm-hmm. Um
0: yeah. yeah and it's 70 years i just looked it up so it's okay, 70 the, years yep so it's the lifetime of the author plus 70 years
1: Um so you are obtaining permissions if you want to quote or things will you know permissions will be obtained for properties that are still under copyright so we should probably should have defined that first but
0: anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> good good to know Um yeah so publishers or authors. A lot of times it is the author is required to obtain permissions, and you'll know because this will be in your contract. <laughs> if you are responsible for obtaining the permissions, it will state um, what permissions you need to get and how to get them. Usually the publisher will have a specific form that needs to be filled out on their specific form because that their form obviously has all of their legal bases covered. So you need to use, you know, their specific forms. They'll provide you with those. And anything that you don't have permissions for won't make the final cut of the book. You know, if you're still waiting on permissions for something and they're down to the final hour, they'll just cut it out uh, rather than include it if you don't have the proper permissions. A lot of times, publishers are going to tell you, "Don't even bother trying to get permissions. Just cut it all now. Just." Just cut it all now. A lot of people like to open their books with things like song lyrics or with poems or other kind of quotes as like little chapter headings. They like to set They're the mood. They're technically called epigraphs
1: mm-hmm. that, you know, so, you know, often you'll see, and I do them in Winter Song, each part, so like part one, part two, part three, part four are uh, preceded by poetry epigraphs from Christina Rossetti, <clears throat> but she's in the public domain, so... Didn't yeah. have to worry. So <laughs> it's didn't not have to an issue.
0: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> A lot of times um, publishers are just going to tell you right off the bat to just cut those if they're not in the public domain because obtaining so many various permissions from different sources is so difficult. And if you can get one permission but not the other, then all of a sudden you're stuck trying to find something else to put in in the chapter that you couldn't get the permission for, you know, and it just becomes a scramble. Especially song lyrics. Publishers will always, 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 always tell you to ask song lyrics because it's even harder to get permission for those than for anything else. Um, And they're much more expensive. And when you're quoting a portion of a song, no matter how little the quote is, it makes up a substantially larger percentage of the song because lyrics are, by comparison to a novel, if you're quoting one line from a, a song lyric and one line from a novel, the percentage of what that makes up is vastly different. Um, so song lyrics are almost always going to be a no. I'm sure out there there's some publisher who's going to fight the good fight for you and get you your song lyrics if it's super important. But for the most part, people... Um, just, just save yourself the headache and just get rid of them now because they're likely not going to stay. Um, I think that that kind of leads me a little bit into fair use. So maybe I'll, I'll go in toward fair use now and I will um, kind of go back and we can round out our permission discussion I just recently learned a lot more about fair use by the nature of my position um, as kind of heading up a legal department and working closely with our outside legal counsel. I am not a lawyer. I don't have a background in law. I'm not a paralegal. Um, I just have a lot of experience working specifically with publishing contracts. And our publisher, the one that I work for, has outside legal counsel that specializes in entertainment and publishing law and so I work closely with him on various issues that come in that need a sharper legal eye than just that of a contracts expert. And he has taught me quite a lot about fair use and what it actually means according to the law and not so much what it has come to mean in publishing when we kind of talk about it. Kind of the the offhand, like... The thing that you'll hear about fair use when talking to people is that you can quote up to a certain percentage of something without needing permissions and without violating any copyright laws. As long as you stay within that percentage, you're fine. And usually it's like no more than 10% of the work is, I think, the thing that they toss around a lot. And that's kind of like the industry accepted understanding of fair use. That's what I always thought that fair use was. Um, you know, that's kind of what people generally say is that as long as you limit it to, you know, a very slim portion of the overall work, that it's fair use and it's fine. That is not actually true. (laughs) There's a whole host of things that make up fair use and you need to have multiple things checked off the list in order for courts to side with you that your use is actually fair. And the number one thing that you have to have for fair use is that the use has to be transformative. You have to use it in some way that is different than the original use. And just slapping a quote into your book is not transformative. And it does not count to spare use, whether, you know, no matter how slim of a percentage of material you're using.
1: The What qualifies as transformative is somewhat nebulous. Um, you often see, I don't know if you guys like watch YouTube videos or, or critics of properties or things like that, um, particularly those who review movies and things like that or discuss and do like critical essays, video essays about film, F- it would be considered fair it's considered fair use if they use clips of those films because they're doing a critical analysis and they are transforming mm-hmm. the work um by by dissecting it by looking at it by you know uh just talking about it and not sort of using it for their own personal gain for the lack of a better word And that's why it's considered transformative. The reason just quoting like a line or two in your novel is not considered transformative is because you're not doing anything with that copyrighted material. You're just sort Mm -hmm. of referencing it. And that doesn't do anything. Now, the reason I think it has sort of become accepted in the industry that, oh, a small percentage is okay to get away with is because for the most part, this happens so often that right. the chances of you getting prosecuted for violating fair use is really slim. Um, some people will go after any and all usage of their work, and it is within their rights since they are the copyright holder, but particularly for things like song lyrics, it can take... I mean, think about how many people use song lyrics for everything. hmm um, you know, and you think about those internet memes where people have quoted song lyrics on, like, a, an image and then it gets shared all over the place. That is also technically a violation mm-hmm. of fair use. and But you can't really prosecute that, you know.
0: Right. So- you can send out a million cease and desist letters. And, and also, people are not going to go after people doing stuff on YouTube or whatever because there's no money to be made there. But if you publish things without proper permissions in a book then it's likely that the publishing house has money and people might be more willing to go after after someone where there is a potential ability to get remuneration to get money back um as opposed to just going on every corner of the internet and shaking your finger at people who quote your you know song lyrics in their Facebook profiles or whatever
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the The thing about, and this is a problem for all sorts of creative people, it's not just, you know, song lyrics. It's the easiest example we can think of. But, you know, Mm -hmm. artists um, often have their work kind of used or circulated online and be like, look at this cool piece of art. Technically, that is also in violation of fair use. Like, you can't Mm -hmm. disseminate artwork from somebody, even if they put it online. And a lot of times, most artists are pretty cool about it, and they're just like, as long as you credit me, Right. You know, you can you can reblog it on your Tumblr or whatever. Um but technically again that is also in violation of fair use and of their copyrighted work. The other thing so this is becoming increasingly more and more common is that you often find sort of swag and merchandise that is inspired by or takes quotes from books. <laughs> um and there is a real gray area legality-wise, because technically, for the most part, the author retains the sub-right or the the right to merch of their own material. Right. And so technically, all those Etsy shops that have those beautiful prints with quotes or referencing characters or things like that that they have for sale are in violation of the copyright, um, but the reason I say it's gray is that because a lot of times the author will just kind of they encourage right. it in many ways because you know they want other uh, other their fans to engage with the work and this and this and that, but technically. Weirdly, if you do it without the author's permission, the author then has the ability to kind of turn their head aside and be like, okay, that's fine. But if you actually approach the author directly and ask for permission, then the legalities get way more complicated. So... This you know, in this day and age where it's a lot, where it's really easy to do this kind of a thing, it it is very very difficult to find that line because obviously legally there is a a, is a line, but prosecuting that is Mm -hmm. often up to the discretion of the copyright holder.
0: Yeah, the other way around, fair use is parody. Mm -hmm. Um. But parody also has a lot of rules that come with it, too. And that parody is when, you know, you're kind of making fun of something. I think I remember ages ago there was like a Barry Porter, like Barry Harry Trotter. Potter. Barry Trotter. There you go. Like Harry Potter spoof sort of a thing. Um, and you see them everywhere for all kinds of stuff. You know, they're they're parodies of things. Um, but there are rules about that, too. A parody has to comment upon the original work. It can't just be something funny in the style of. That does not clear you from permissions use, just because you change some names and letters around and make it funny. You actually have to have the parody work be a commentary on the original work, and therefore it is, in that sense, also transformative. There was a law case um, decided That someone had published a book um, about a high profile legal trial and they had published it in picture book form in the style of Dr. Seuss. So like rhyming with like illustrations and it just told the story of this legal trial that had played out in the United States and they were sued. And the courts, they they brought a parody defense. They said, you know, we're telling this story in Dr. Seuss and the picture book and all this stuff. And the courts decided it was not parody because it didn't actually comment on the original material. It just told the story of this person's life and their crimes in a specific style and way. But it didn't provide any commentary on it at all. And so the parody defense was rejected. And so that's another place, too, if you try to wave yourself off and say, oh, you know, I'm parodying it. It's fine. You still have to be transformative in that use.
1: Yeah. And I think I do want to segue into plagiarism. Mm. (sighs) Plagiarism is kind of, one, I don't think anyone has really ever brought plagiarism to court that I can think of um, because often plagiarism really deals with not necessarily intellectual property which you could which you could prosecute in court. Plagiarism is the use of someone's words but just slightly tweaked.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And then passing those words off as your own.
0: Yeah, it's claiming someone else's work as your own, essentially. Yes. And it is
1: very, very difficult to prosecute, essentially, because you would have to essentially establish a trail or a timeline with proof that, you know, you're the one who wrote it first at this point and then that point. And then the person that you're bringing the suit against would then all could just be like, well, I was inspired by this and that. And it's really, really, really hard to prove. So as a result, I feel like a lot of plagiarism scandals, you know, blow up online as people learn about it and then kind of nobody knows what happens or what the outcome mm-hmm of the the plagiarism is generally if a book if some if a if a work is found to be a work of plagiarism or have significant passages plagiarized it, honestly it can depend because sometimes the publisher may decide that the better part of discretion and, and dignity is to actually just recall the book
0: mm-hmm. and
1: cancel it and not publish it that's probably the easiest way, you know, so that the person who plagiarized doesn't profit off of the plagiarized work. Um But it can also be, like, depends, like, if, if the amount of that's plagiarized is, like, a line or two here or there, again, that is extremely hard to mm-hmm. call. Um, and it could be a very much a personal thing. So, and specifically, that is what plagiarism is, when you're taking someone's work and not
0: necessarily the idea, their work, their words. Right, because ideas cannot be copyrighted, guys. Yes. <laughs>
1: Often I see a lot of you know people or, or um, reviewers being like, oh, they stole this idea from this person, or they stole this from that person, or blah, 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 blah. You can't, that... <laughs> ideas belong to everyone, mm-hmm. and it's only how you how you write that story that differentiates one idea from another. You Mm -hmm. may have premises that are incredibly similar, but in execution, the books might be, are usually entirely different because the writers who wrote them are two different people. What would make it plagiarism is if the premises were the same and significant parts of the actual writing were the same Mm -hmm. or really, really, really similar. In terms of language construction, character, Mm -hmm. name, like things like that. The actual ideas are not copyrighted.
0: Yeah, it's really difficult. When I was in college, actually, um, someone plagiarized one of my papers. Really? Yes. And she was in my class (laughs) and submitted it for workshop after I had workshopped my. Piece. And it was a persuasive personal essay writing thing. So it was nonfiction. Um, and she'd plagiarized like parts of my life. Cause it was like a personal, like, you know, thing. It was really, the whole thing was really horrible. And we had to go through this whole disciplinary thing where I had to, you know, stand up there and say, this is my work. This is how I did it. You know, whatever. Um, it was really difficult and emotionally taxing. And it felt really violating at the time. So, I I can only imagine how it must feel to be a published author and to feel as though someone has taken your work. Um, you know, that's a really horrible feeling to have. Uh, but again, just ideas themselves are not copyrighted. You have to have an actual tangible work that somebody has taken. And this is also why, have you heard about this, where some people with queries will want Agents to sign non-disclosure things before you before they read they'll send their query. First of all, no agent is going to do that, and um, and second of all, it's 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 just a preposterous idea if you know about how copyright and intellectual property and non-disclosure agreements work. Um, Agents can't sign that because ideas are in the ether, if you write a book about a superhero princess and someone else writes a book about a superhero princess and the agent picks up that other book, you can't, you know, press charges against the agent for working with another client who had a similar premise to your book. Like it just doesn't work that way, guys.
1: No, I mean, there are some probably less than great, or maybe some slightly shady business practices, Yes, I have seen where, you know, someone talks about the premise of their book, and then the agent who heard it is like, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll get someone in my own roster to write something similar.
0: Yeah. And that's not great.
1: (laughs) It's not great. It is technically legal, but it is not ethical.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that ultimately, you know, comes down to the agent and you, you know, everybody has to just hope that we're all working with the same basic set of principles and, uh, and trying to do our best. But yeah, I've heard of situations like that too. And it, it does suck. Um, It's also a lot of this, like, trend jumping where one thing makes it big and all of a sudden everybody tries to jump on that bandwagon by writing something similar. Um, You know, it's not plagiarism. It's not,
1: you know, copyright infringement. You know, there's something that's in the zeitgeist that causes people to subconsciously pick up on it and then write things about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. even in, like, the late 90s, we had two movies about asteroids hitting the Earth and destroying it. We had Armageddon and Deep Impact. And they aren't two entirely different movies. But premise-wise, they're more or less the same. You know, so it's it's often, you know, something happens often that, you know, people subconsciously pick up on these things. And that's why you do get trends. It's not that people are consciously writing to trends. It's just that these trends are kind of in everybody's, the back of everyone's minds. And that's why they, they may be writing toward it. So, I mean, it can depend, like, the dystopian thing... Generally, There's one property that opens the gates. So there's like, you know, that Twilight opened the gates for Paranormal Romance and, you know, The Hunger Games opened the gates for Dystopian. But the thing about trend publishing is that, you know, you get tired of it and it comes back. And I also believe, anyway, that we are in a post-trend publishing era. Since, I'd say since 2010, 2011... I don't think there's been a trend at least for YA and I don't see any trends in adults. It's hard to have trend publishing in adult anyway. Right. Cuz it's just so broad. So that's my opinion. I think we are living in a post-trend era and I think we are actually living for YA publishing in the era of the celebrity author. Um so you we can if y'all ever meet me in real life and, and buy me a drink, I can lay all my thoughts about Publishing to you, <laughs> um, which I will not go to in this podcast. Since we have, st- we have
0: stories, we
1: have stories, and and just opinions and educated guesses because we've been around long enough now that we can we've seen kind of waves and things come and go. So, um, but yes, going back to permissions and fair and fair use and copyright. Um, again, a lot of this is, as we mentioned before, notoriously difficult to prosecute. Um, There are also, unfortunately, some predatory people out there who will send cease and desist letters all over the place. Um, It's actually really easy to bring charges against someone. It doesn't cost a lot of money to bring charges against someone, but it sure costs a lot of money to defend it and to bring mm-hmm. to bring it to court because of all the, law, the lawyer fees and everything. So you do see some unscup, unscrupulous people out there um, and, and it's always a money grab because they're hoping to settle outside of court. Yeah. So, uh, but again, this is rare and it generally only happens to people who are huge runaway successes because some people want in on that sweet, sweet money. Um and so they'll be sent cease and desist letters like, oh, I, I had this idea first, blah, blah, blah. It's really hard to prove. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else
0: you want to talk about in terms of this this subject? No, I think that's really... The basics of all of it, I mean, of course, you know, with any topic, you can go really deep if you want to. (laughs) We could go to like a 501 level of uh, permissions and fair use, but in general, I think we've we've covered the basics of what people need to know and, and probably illuminated a lot of concepts for people. You know, like I said before, I wasn't fully aware of the actual meaning of fair use legally, until this past year when it became relevant for my job. But up until then, I'd always kind of just known the accepted industry standard of fair use. Um, And so if I didn't know that, I'm sure that lots of our listeners didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing, the one last coda I want to talk about is um, retellings or inspirations. So... Mine, as I've as I mentioned before, Winter Song is inspired by Labyrinth. Um, it's not exactly strictly a retelling, but it's heavily inspired by. And I have been asked, like, people like, oh, how is this not copyright infringement? And I said, well, it would be copyright infringement if I used the characters of Sarah, Jareth, Hoggle, etc. Mm-hmm. But the characters in my book are their own. And it's not like the character of the Goblin King is copyrighted character of a goblin king exists in mythology long before the Labyrinth movie was made. But then we have other things like, so we have books that are either retellings of Peter Pan or use elements of Peter Pan, like Tinkerbell or Neverland, or, um, you know, we have Wizard of Oz retellings, we have Alice in Wonderland retellings. And I do believe the copyright on those has passed. So you can use elements of, of them, whatever you want. It's also like the the Pride and Prejudice in Zombies or the Sense and Sensibility in Sea Monsters. Because the works of Jane Austen are in the public domain, you can use those characters and, and do what you want with them. So that's why sometimes you see these books that are like retellings of old properties and use the actual characters. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of why I want to clarify that a little bit yeah okay so i i think that's it for the main section so we can move on to our next um Mm -hmm. we still working on the same things i'm assuming i'm
0: working on something new that's not writing (laughs) (laughs) i i've signed up for my first ever 5k nice yeah, I'm not a runner, you guys. I I realized today when I was signing up for my first ever 5K that I have never in my entire life run so much as a mile before. Even in high school during the physical fitness tests, I used to just walk the mile portion cuz I could walk it in, you know, in whatever time you needed to to do it to pass. So I've actually never run like any length or any duration of time ever. Uh, <laughs> but as part of my quest to get healthier and to be more active and move my body for both my physical health and my mental health, especially, um, I I needed, you know, again, I'm external validation girl and I need something to work against. And so if I sign up for this 5K, I have to run it. So I signed up. I told my family. I put together a training plan that starts tomorrow so you guys can all come find me on Twitter where I will be bitching and moaning about running and how horrible it is. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's awful, I'm not going to lie. Although I did like I said, I think I might have mentioned like that one misguided year that I did a lot of running thinking mm-hmm. that I would do the New York City Marathon. <laughs> um Honestly, I do think the 5K is the perfect length for yeah. Um, It's generally, I can run a 5K in about 27 minutes. Um, so it's like half an hour. It's not so long that you start getting bored. You know, it's just long enough to kind of keep going. And also, I did the, the couch to 5K program. That's what I'm
0: doing. Yeah, I just got the app.
1: And honestly, I really loved it. I really had a wonderful time training for my first five k i um it was it it was just the right amount of like you know increasing the amount of time you're running and the steps and the and the this and the that um and my first race was in washington heights um it was a five k it was you know hill training <laughs> it was awful, but it was also a lot of fun um yeah. And races are really wonderful, so i i'm you know I'm really happy for you because that that is a lot of fun to do and um but beyond the five k any length beyond that is just awful. <laughs> no, I run all the way up to a half marathon and I'm just like nah. and anything beyond like a half hour of your, of your time it starts to get really boring and then you start to think about the actual act of running and then you're like I hate every bit of this and then you kind of break through a wall and things are great again and then after another period of time you start to hit the oh this sucks <laughs> so you know I feel like the worst for me the worst length is five miles Because after the 5K, which is about 3.1 miles when you use the Imperial system like we do in the States, um, it's about 3.1 miles, it takes me about 45 minutes to run 5 miles, and I hate the last two. I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it. It's like the worst stretch of time. But actually, once I get beyond 5 miles, between that and like 10 miles, it's fine. So, Mm -hmm. you know, running is weird. I hate it. But the one year I did do it, I learned a lot about myself. (laughs) All right. So then, are you reading anything? Consuming anything? Watching anything?
0: No. (laughs) Not yet. One of these days, I'm going to surprise you all. Not even TV? Or podcasts Um, or anything? No, I mean, all my general, all my usual podcasts that I've talked about here before, I'm, you know, still listening to, Dusted, Witch Please, you know, all that stuff. Um, TV, no, I haven't watched anything on TV in a long time. I don't know what I'm doing with all my time, you guys. I do. I mean, I know exactly what I'm doing with my time, but um, yeah, no TV right now.
1: Yeah, aside from Stranger Things, which is the last thing I, I did watch, I I have the music for The Get Down, and once I turn in my book, I fully intend to watch The Get Down, because I love the music, and it, it sounds really great, so, but that's about it in terms of my own TV watching, I'm just not somebody, you know, the only time I ever see TV is if I'm at my parents' house, because we don't have cable, or if right. I'm traveling, and like in the hotel, and it's like on in the background. Um well, I was in Savannah last week, past weekend for the Southern Independent Booksellers Association. Um I've nice. never been to Savannah before, and uh, Roshni Chakshi and I went and she put dragged me on a ghost tour, which I highly recommend. Savannah <laughs> is legit haunted, you guys. Like I took a lot of pictures and like I I am like afraid to edit them because I, I think I, I think I got something on. I think I got stuff on film and I'm like I don't know if I want to look at it right now. Um but Savannah is very beautiful. You know, um a lot of Spanish moss hanging everywhere and it's very very gothic um and haunted feeling. So if you're if you're into that, which I am clearly, um, I do recommend do recommend Savannah. So, okay, so then if we've moved... Oh, Ugh. I am reading stuff. I forgot to mention. If what are you reading? Am, uh, I just finished uh, The Reader by Tracy Chee. Um, and I'm also starting... I've already read this before, but I'm I'm reading it now on audio. Uh, A Shadow Bright and Burning by Jessica Clues. Uh Both of these are really great and delightful, and I believe Tracy Chee just hit the New York Times bestseller list for... Uh,
0: the reader so congrats to her awesome so this is what you're saying now or first we have questions though yeah so what you're asking what you're asking okay we have one from liz green hi ladies i love the podcast you asked for questions to fill the final section so here's some what do you think of indie publishing are indies quote real authors? Are they onto something? Would you ever consider self-publishing? How is the indie world impacting traditional publishing? Those are all really great and varied questions. Um, I'm going to start with are indies real authors? Um, and I think the answer is yes. I think if Absolutely. you if you write a book, then you're an author and. I don't think anyone can take that away from you. I don't think it's relevant where you publish or how you publish. Um, You know, I think that's an accomplishment, a tangible accomplishment that you can point to. You wrote a book and you are most definitely an author. Um, I think indie publishing is really interesting. You know, when I think of indie publishing... I'm thinking of small presses um, that are scattered around the country and a lot of them focus on different things or different genres um, or have kind of different mission statements. Some are for-profit, some are non-profit. Um, I think that indie publishers are a great home for people um, who maybe have something different to say. Or who um, want more personalized attention than can always be offered to every author at a big traditional house. Um, I think that there's a lot of great things about indie publishing. It's definitely different than traditional publishing. There are pros and cons to both, for sure.
1: Well, I just want to clarify. So when Liz says indie, does... Does she mean small press or does she mean self-publishing? Because often most self-published authors do call themselves indie.
0: Right. That's what I assumed because later she says, would you ever consider self-publishing? Which I guess because she specified it differently, I thought she was talking about two different things. I would agree with you. I I would think that indie publishing is small presses but is still a traditional publishing model. Whereas I think self-publishing is very different from that. That's, you know, when the author is doing them things directly.
1: Well when I hear indie publishing, I don't think small press, I think self publisher. You do. Yeah. Um and i think that's just me then. Yeah, I feel like that's an accepted terminology these days is that indie means self. And then if you are with a small publisher, that's just called small publishing. Small
0: press. Yeah. Small press publishing. Yeah, that Um, actually does make sense.
1: But the answer is still true. Are indie authors real authors? Yes. Oh of course. Again, as Kelly said, you wrote a book um, and you are publishing it, you are an author. You're a real author. Um, the fo- the other questions are sort of, you know, trying to unpack that. But I guess we'll start with, are they changing the landscape? Is indie publishing changing the landscape of publishing? <sighs> it depends on what part of publishing you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean... To be completely honest, for children's fiction, indie publishing is more or less non-existent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for children, for kidlit, print is still king. It outsells E by pretty huge margin, to be oh, honest. Oh,
0: absolutely. And
1: the reasons for this in kidlit are, you know, a lot of reasons for this, partially because it's parents buying books for children. And maybe children don't have an iPad or a Kindle or Kobo or whatever. They don't have an e-reader, and they don't have their own dedicated dedicated account to buy books on. So a lot of times, print is just because the parent has made the buying decision and given. When you get to YA for teens, teens love the object of a book. They love it. You know, it's it's a sentimental thing for teens. And I remember when I was a teenage girl, I collected a lot of. Objects because they had sentimental value to me. And the other thing about print books for teens is that they can share it with their friends. And that's a big part of socializing as a teenager is when you're sharing books with people. And this is what I mean by when I said about YA publishing is entering the age of the celebrity author. You have all these events for really popular authors, these long lines with these teens who are just there to see the author and to be in their presence and to get their autograph or they get their their signature in the book, and then, then they can have the book, and it's a sentimental thing. So for kidlit and YA, I would say self-publishing is not a thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really exist.
0: Yeah, no. I, mean, I, can, there are I know as a parent, I have never bought my child an e-book where we just buy her physical picture books.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is like for indie YA, it's, it's harder to get the word out about indie YA because again, print is so key for the way teens connect and find books. They still go to a bookstore and they still buy books there. Um, but the, the way often people can break into indie publishing or into traditional publishing through, through YA indie publishing is if their book is, you know, getting enough sales and hits on their own. Sometimes, um, a publisher will pick that up and then produce a print version of it because a print version of a YA novel sells infinitely more copies than mm-hmm. ebook versions of YA novels now the people who buy ebook versions of YA novels tend to be adults not teens themselves not the audience for whom the books are are meant to be read now other areas of publishing where you can make quite a bit of money are the adult genres, particularly romance? Yep. Now, I would say that self-publishing has absolutely changed the romance publishing landscape. For many things, a couple of things, because romances, romance readers have different reading habits than some of the other genres of publishing. For one, a lot of romance readers are mass-market readers, and um, so mass-market paperbacks are generally much cheaper than you know, like a you know twenty five dollar hardcover that you get, or even a fifteen dollar hard a paperback of a of a previously hardcover book. So they're much cheaper. They're just generally like dollars ninety nine, eight dollars. The other thing, because the price point of a romance novel is generally much lower, romance readers tend to consume a lot more of them. So mm-hmm. most of us, when we read books, we tend to read them. Just at a much slower pace, I think, because a lot of... And I was talking with my friend, uh, Sarah Lemon. She Her book is coming out in, in March of 2017, Done Dirt Cheap. It's really excellent, by the way. But she and I were talking about it. I, myself, am not a romance reader, but she is. And so we were sort of talking about what we look for in romances, in general, not just romance novels, but just in romances. And she said that when she reads romance novels, you know, category romance novels, She's reading for the trope. So she's looking for a specific trope, specific character types, and specific situations. And because of that, you can consume a lot of romance novels in a short amount of time. And that's why there are so many romance novels out there. uh, Because of the way mass market publishing works. So... In the era of self-publishing slash e-books, the price point of a romance novel got dropped even lower because it's now much cheaper. The biggest readership of romance is our adult women who have their own disposable income. So they were the first adopters of the e-reader and they were the first adopters of the e-book as a format because they were much cheaper. And again, they were able to consume a lot more work. And so where the advantage came in, where the transformative nature of self-publishing came in for romance is that when you are a romance writer and you know how to edit and uh, find a copy editor and, you know, make a cover, you can do that relatively cheaply. Not like, not cheaply as in like cheap quality, but you can do it relatively inexpensively. And if you price your book just right, which is less than what's coming out from a traditional publisher, because the way romance readers read books and they're looking for a trope, if your book fulfills those tropes and what they're looking for, their catnip, so to speak, then they'll buy you regardless of whose publishing name is on your spine or, Mm -hmm. you know, in the description. So in that respect, yes, I would say that indie publishing has changed the landscape of romance publishing. But, and here's the thing, and a lot of my friends who do publish, who are indie authors, who are quote, hybrid authors, have discovered that the books, their books do better when they are older and have heavy romantic elements. So a lot of my friends who indie published YA have discovered that a lot of the feedback that they've gotten is oh, this would be great if it was older and you know, the romance was more adult. And that's often why – so for a while in publishing, there is this concept of new adult, which is YA, but slightly older and a bit more mature. New adult, as it was initially intended to be, just didn't pan out. So – but what has happened to the category of new adult is that new adult has basically become contemporary romance, young contemporary romance. Yeah. And that does really well in indie because it's a romance – You know, and it's got a lot of the YA tropes that people like, but it's like it's the adult part that gets readers to pick it up. I don't think of very many actual teenagers who read new adult. Um, so and then you know there are others like science fiction, fantasy. Often you can, you know, it's a little trickier, I think, to get a huge runaway breakout success in indie publishing as a sci-fi fantasy author, but it can definitely happen. I mean, look at The Martian. That was self-published before it became its huge success. Um, I believe Sleeping Giants by Sylvan Newell was also, uh, you know, a a self-published work before it was picked up by traditional press. Uh, I believe the same thing with mysteries and thrillers. There are, um, especially if you have an established series, um, so like Jana Ivanovich, she kind of writes sort of women's fiction slash mystery adventure type books, and she was with a traditional publisher for a very long time, and then decided to go indie with it, because, you know, it's a long-established series, so people who buy her books at that stage are buying her because they're committed to the series itself, um, and not necessarily the physical object of the book. So, in those ways, yes, I think indie publishing has changed the face of traditional publishing, but otherwise... Traditional publishing just keeps chugging on, keeps going mm-hmm. on. You know, everyone perennially there's always like, "Oh, print is dead." Print is not dead, you guys. It still it still exists, and if mm-hmm. if nothing else, even if adult in adult print goes away, it will last forever for children. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I agree.
1: Would I ever consider self publishing? Yes, I would if, mm-hmm. if I. Again, if I were to write in uh, adult romance, I would probably consider indie publishing. Uh, Also, if I wanted to write short stories set in my worlds, because short story is really hard to write in print, but you can, you know, quickly copy edit that and, you know, format that and get a good cover for that, again, relatively inexpensively. Put it online for like 99 cents and, you know, people who are into... Works that I've already written and want just like extra stories in it, then I would absolutely consider self
0: publishing. So, anyway, do yeah. you have anything to add? No, I, I agree. I would self publish, um, particularly romance in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. We have another question from Ellie. Ellie says, I love these podcasts, especially the recaps. They're really important because I love reading them at work when I can't listen. JJ does all of our show notes, you guys, exclusively. <laughs> I have never once done the show notes for this show. She does a lot of behind-the-scenes work for this podcast, and it's amazing. So thank you, JJ. <laughs> um, do you guys think you could do one on author newsletters? When to start them and what services you use? I'm going to let you field this one because you have an author newsletter. I do. I
1: actually really love the newsletter. Um I have been around the internet long enough to see trends come and go. So <laughs> I'm old, you guys. Um But so back in the nineties, a newsletter was definitely um actually still in print. You know, you know, people would indie publish like zine, Zines, zines? Is it zines?
0: Zines. I think it's zines
1: would, you know, publish zines and send them out with bits of poetry and stuff like that. Um, and I definitely was into zine publishing as well. Of course, in the 90s, I was still like 10, 11. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, and then as the Internet kind of came on, then we had um sort of the confessional live journal slash Zanga era of the Internet. Oh, and my then God. That, yeah, I know. <laughs> And then that sort of moved to, so like, I would say, like, early 2000s to, like, 2000, mid-2005. 2005. Like, 2005 was, like, the era of the confessional live journal Zanga era. And then beyond 2005 to, like, 2008, we had the blog. Mm-hmm. Like, the personal blog. Um, and then sort of beyond 2008... The blog is kind of just dropped off. I think the blogging environment is much different than it was, you know, eight years ago. Yep. RIP Google Reader. Yeah, I know. RIP Google <laughs> Reader. I mean, it's not to say that blogs don't exist, but now blogs are much more, you know, niche. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, you know, book review blogs, they are beauty blogs, there are fashion blogs, there are things like that, but the actual personal blog is pretty much defunct. It doesn't exist anymore. So then, therein comes the author newsletter. Now, people have always told us to you know at least when you start out in publishing that's good to have an email list you know of people who are interested in your work. so they sign up for your email list so they get an email notification and There are reasons I think that the newsletter is starting to take off is because we're so inundated with stuff online to read you know we've got BuzzFeed articles we've got you know all the digital newspapers we've got you know this and that um so And all the blogs that we read, like celebrity gossip blogs, fashion blogs, all that sort of stuff, we're inundated with all of this information all the time, Mm -hmm. so then when you get a personalized email in your inbox, you start to pay more attention to that. As for when to start a newsletter, that is actually, in fact, up to anyone, you know, (laughs) when you want to start it. You can start it as early as you like. Um, Start gathering um, emails from people. I started mine. When was my first newsletter? I started mine this year, and I basically um, started just sending it out. I'm actually subscribed to quite a few author newsletters because I like reading about it. Their stuff because they often will talk about personal things. Since the personal blog no longer exists, in these newsletters, these authors whose newsletters to which I'm subscribed will talk about what what's going on in their lives. They will talk about what they're reading, what they're listening to, and also they will often list um, events that they're going to, that you can see them at. And I love this kind of much more personalized glimpse into their lives that no longer exists on the wider internet. Um, So that's as somebody who is subscribed to newsletters. As somebody who creates newsletters, I... On a purely mercenary level, you can rely on newsletter subscribers to genuinely be interested in your book because they took the effort to sign up for it. Mm-hmm. They took the extra two seconds it took to like, type in their email in your subscription box and hit send and confirm that. Um, so that's really great. So these are people who are genuinely interested in your book when they sign up for your newsletter. Um, also, at events, if you do go to events, if you want to have a sign up sheet, you know, and just sort of listen, you know, explain to them if you want to put your email down, then I can add you manually to my newsletter if you agree to it. And again, people who sign up for this, it's because it's of their own volition, it's because they do want to hear from you. So it's not quite like Twitter or other bits of social media where it's a little bit like you're talking into the void. This is absolutely much more personal, and that's what's wonderful about author newsletters. Um, in mine I do have a little bit of a theme mine is called lexical gap because I'm obsessed with lexical gaps in English. (laughs) Kelly knows this about me, I mean she's known me forever I collect like like, weird German compound nouns because I just love them and I share that with people who are subscribed to my newsletter just because I like it and then I give a little bit of behind the scenes about what I'm working on in my book, whatever inspired me or you know this or that, a little personal update. Sometimes I'll you know, add a recipe that I have created, or if people have asked me questions about writing that they want answered, I'll do that. So it's a little bit like you're fostering your own community when you have a newsletter. Um, so I I do recommend them. I love them. There are plenty of of news newsletter uh, like agents out there. I use Mailchimp, um, Mailchimp, as Cereal <laughs> would remind you. Hey, hey, MailChimp! I would, I would take a sponsorship, by the way, if you guys- For
0: sure, for sure. <laughs>
1: um, but I believe Google also offers, you know, newsletter options. There's, you know, I think something Monkey. There's quite a few out there, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to look around and, and check. Most of them are free um, until you reach a certain threshold of subscribers. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it hurts to start one up now. Um, and slowly build your list. Um, you know, I I've had mine for a couple months and I have a pretty healthy list size. And you know, I haven't actively really gone out to to build it all that much. I mean, I had people sign up. You know, when I revealed my cover for Winter Song and things like that. But it, the other thing about a newsletter is you don't have to do it if you don't want to. As with everything we've discussed before, any social media, any promotion, anything that doesn't jive with you, then don't do it. I created a newsletter because I read newsletters, and I like them, and I like doing them. But if I didn't, then I think people would be able to tell. So,
0: yeah. Do we have any other questions? Um, Our next question we're actually going to paraphrase a little bit, because it's someone asking for specific... Um, Advice for their specific situation. But um, there's kind of two parts to the question. One is how to educate yourself about um, options for film rights. And the other part of it is how to get an agent when you already have a contract from a publisher. And the first part regarding options for film rights, um, I have actually never worked With film rights it's like the one part of publishing I don't have personal direct experience in Um, you know generally options work by um, people will option the rights to your book for a limited amount of time you should always make sure that that limit is clearly defined um, so that you know when those rights are gonna revert if, during that option period, they do decide to go ahead and purchase the rights, because what they're doing with an option is they're just essentially calling dibs on it. They're like, no one else can buy this while we think about whether or not we want to make a movie out of it. <laughs> We're going to think about whether or not to make a movie, and while we think about it, no one else can do anything, is kind of essentially what an option is. Um, if they decide to... I guess there are three options. They can either let the option lapse. When that time period is up, they can let it go, in which case the rights go back to the rights holder, either the publisher if you've licensed subrights or the author if you've retained them. Um, They can let it lapse. They can renew the option for another period and extend it and say, we still want to think about it. No one else can do anything while we continue to think about it yet again. Um, which is ideally the best situation for you, really. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you just continually have your book optioned is really like the ideal scenario. Yeah, um, it's like
1: consistent income.
0: Yeah, but with no one, you know, taking artistic license with your work. So, um, So that's another option. And then the final option is that they could choose to purchase the rights. They've thought about it, they want to make the movie, and now they've got to buy it. So I would say when you have an option looming, the things that you want to look at are to make sure that the time limit for the option is clearly defined. You want to make sure that the steps are outlined for what to do next. If they want to purchase it, you know, it should be stated that they will purchase it for a sum to be mutually determined, you know, with other governed by a separate agreement, yada, yada, yada. Essentially, it should say if they want to purchase the rights, we'll talk about that in another contract. Um, you know, the time limit is really the big one. Um, make sure that those rights revert back after a limited amount of time. And, uh, and yeah, unfortunately I'm not a film person, so I don't know too much about the details of options, but I, you know, general contract language is kind of universally the same. You want to make sure that things are clear. You want to make sure that Nothing is ambiguous. If you're reading it and things seem ambiguous or seem like there's no clearly defined rules or limitations or time periods or anything like that, if everything is just kind of vague, you really want to get the clearest terms for everything that you possibly can, always, with all contracts across the board. Um, The second part about how to get an agent when you are already um, under contract with a publisher. Usually agents will jump at the chance to pick up a client who has already done the hard work of finding a publishing deal. Um, it usually, you know, says, okay, hey, someone has demonstrated that they're willing to invest money in this client. I don't have to do the hard work of submissions. I can just pick this up and run with it. Um, so most agents would really be excited about that. When you query agents, you should start,
1: it depends. Well, well,
0: I do have a I do have a caveat too, which it depends on the What were you going to say it depends on? Well, it depends on a couple of things. Depends on the publisher. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my first my first thing. Was it depends, depends on, on the, on the publisher.
1: publisher? But it also depends on what stage of the contract negotiation you're in.
0: Because Yeah.
1: If it's a done deal, you've, you've already signed it, then it's unlikely the agent will represent you for the work that is already under contract. Now, they may right. represent you for future work because when you've already negotiated a contract on your own without an agent, that agent doesn't make any money off of this. So mm-hmm. they have no financial reason to want to offer representation. However, if in your query letter you're querying an entirely new work, and you say, I've already been published with this publisher, my book is coming out, that is more attractive because they have a new work that they can shop around, that they can negotiate better terms for you and earn that 15% commission. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, an agent is not really going to be interested because if you say, oh, I just sold a book and I signed a contract, can you represent me on this project? Then the agent is really not going to be like, well, there's really nothing I can do for you, so then why would I take this on?
0: Right. You either have to do it when you get the deal but haven't signed anything, at which point you say, I have an offer from this publisher, I'm looking for an agent, and then the agent can come in and negotiate the deal for you. Or, like JJ said, you query an entirely new work and you mention your publication history. I did want to talk a little tiny bit, without getting too depressing and grim, about the it depends on the publisher thing. Um... Because there's a couple things to unpack with this. Um, Most publishers, though not all, but most publishers require submissions from agents. They don't accept unsolicited material, unsolicited meaning that there's no one representing it, it's just the author directly going to the publisher and submitting a query. Um, some do, some reputable publishers absolutely do accept unsolicited manuscripts. So, you know, there's an exception to every rule. In general, um, most legit publishers don't accept unsolicited manuscripts. There are a lot of, if not outright scam, then somewhat shady publishing establishments out there. And agents know who those places are. They, they are familiar with those places that are not strictly on the up and up. Um, you know, even if they're not outright scams, uh, there can be all kinds of problems with different publishers for different reasons. And if an agent is reluctant to engage with you when you have a contract with a publisher, it may be not, not definitely is, but it may be a sign that your particular publisher is less than reputable. Um, I, I hate to say stuff like that. I, because I, I do honestly believe that the majority of people in this business are savvy, intelligent people who are working to industry standards, who care passionately about their authors and their well-being and their careers and want what's best for them. Um I don't think that publishers are out there to rip authors off. You know, I, I dislike that narrative that publishers are evil. Um I don't think that's the truth. And yet it must be acknowledged that there are some predatory places out there And if you are going it alone without an agent or with an agent who is really inexperienced, then you are more susceptible to falling victim to one of those predatory publishers.
1: Yeah. I mean, Predators and Editors, of course, is a wonderful resource. Um, Yep. Talking about not just predatory presses, but predatory agents. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing is... A lot of small presses, uh, the reason a lot of agents are hesitant to publish is that they don't actually, a lot of small presses don't have the same reach into the print market that a, uh, even a mid-sized publisher would have. Um, and depending on what you write, it may be a deal-breaker for some agents because, you know, I mean, a lot of romance Publishers are often digital first, and because of the way romance readers consume fiction, that's not necessarily a big deal. But if you are a, a kidlit writer, and your small publisher doesn't necessarily have the reach into the print market, or even more crucially, the library market, um, then it's almost, for them, kind of considering it's not worth it uh, if they don't have the contacts into it. And, like, and the thing is, obviously, a lot of small presses take time to grow. Um, so it could also be that the the press hasn't been around long enough to establish a list, a backlist, uh, like that, a reputable backlist, but um, you know, it, it it can it can depend. So when you know, or here's the other one, if you get an offer from a publisher and it's like a vanity press, um, they're probably gonna be like, yeah. No, that's you know, that's not it. A vanity press, of course, will ask you to pay Uh, in order to publish your book. Yeah. There are also publishers that are arms of other publishers, if that makes sense, like the um, profit-making arm, the slightly exploitative arm of a more reputable publisher. So I would be careful. Um, But if you've already signed the contract and you have the book coming out, then... That is probably the biggest reason why agents are saying no, because they don't have any room to negotiate for you, and they won't make a commission on what you make. So the best scenario is to just write a new manuscript and query that and explain that you have a book coming out with X publisher at this date. Yep. So we do have one last one from Twitter, and it's from Karima. And her question is how to break into careers in copy editing slash copywriting slash publishing slash etc. So I have written a couple of things on Pubcrawl about this, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, oh, and and relevant to our small press discussion we had a little earlier, Kelly, there were people on the YA subreddit talking about small presses that I can put a link to as well in the show notes. But anyway, how to break into careers.
0: Find an internship? (laughs) Yeah. Internships suck, guys. I know they suck because you're working for free and that is hard and it sucks. And if you're in New York, it's almost impossible to work for free and live if you don't have some other source of income. And if you're not in New York, then it's hard to get an internship to begin with. Unfortunately, that is still a really big part of the publishing world. Um, It's kind of, you know, very much an apprenticeship type of industry, and it really does start with internships. That's for publishing specifically. I feel like you have more room if you're interested in copywriting because copywriting can apply across a lot of different genres. You can find work in the advertising industry. You can find work for online publications. Any sort of communications
1: sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. We'll generally hire
0: copywriters, websites, technical writers. Yep, um, All that. Um, If you're looking for that type of work, for strictly copywriting and copy editing work, um, you will most likely, when you apply for those kinds of jobs, need to pass a copy editing test. So make sure you know your stuff. Um, It really helps if you're versatile in both AP and Chicago style. Um, The more that you know, the more you can apply your skills to different types of projects, the better. yeah. I mean, that would be my number one suggestion for copywriting and copy editing would be, you know, make sure you're up to snuff, take classes if you're not, be prepared to take tests with everything you apply to, um, and broaden your reach beyond just the publishing industry, because you can find copywriting work in a lot of different places. If you're looking specifically to get into the publishing industry, then internships are the traditional way to do it. Also working with books in the book world at bookstores, being a bookseller, working in libraries, working with literature in some way, become really familiar with books and, you know, transfer those skills into applicable skills for the publishing industry.
1: Yeah, so...
0: think those are our last questions yeah thanks you guys I love that we're getting so many yeah so then why don't we oh yeah what what you are saying ah yes let's see okay this is okay the best publishing podcast around from the writing student Hubcrawl is a great source for learning about the publishing industry. The information the hosts explain, things like contracts and subrights, is in a clear and entertaining manner. I recommend it to anyone aspiring to a career in the publishing industry or with a wish to write for it. That is, I think, ultimately what we really do try to do here: is to make things as clear as possible and explain, at least, our points of view, of how things work. Um, so it's really great that it's helpful for people. Yeah.
1: I mean, there is so much about this business that is so completely opaque and there are a lot of people who want to write and who want to get into publishing. But I mean, I grew up in LA and I didn't even know that publishing was an industry at all. I just assumed books Mm -hmm. just appeared on the bookshelf like magic. You know, the book fairy yeah, just la, shows up. A la Athena out of Zeus's head, yeah. just fully formed just fully right formed. There. They just show up. Um, and I didn't really know that there was an actual industry behind this and how to get into it. So, um, yeah, so we try to illuminate that and also about how to get published, you know, which is something that I know a lot of people want to do, and it seems so confusing. Um, so we're trying to explain that as best we can to.
0: So thank you for that review yeah that is all for this week next week we are going to be talking about warranties and indemnities everybody's favorite section of their publishing contract yay so as as always if you want more feel free to subscribe via itunes stitcher podcast pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please rate and review
1: when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast
0: If you want more of Pub Crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Publishing Crawl. You can follow me,
0: Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com.
1: And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com.
0: Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin MacLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening.
0: Bye. Bye.